episode 176, Mike Ulmer, Canadian journalist and best-selling author. My biggest mistake was getting arrested. Um, I was in a confrontation on an airplane uh, where I slapped a co-worker. I'm Mark Rabin. This is my favorite mistake. In this podcast, you'll hear business leaders and other really interesting people talking about their favorite mistakes. Because we all make mistakes, but what matters is learning from our mistakes instead of repeating them over and over again. So this is the place for honest reflection and conversation, personal growth and professional success. Visit our website at myfavoritemistakepodcast.com. To learn more about Mike Ulmer, his books, and his work and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markraven.com slash mistake176. As always, thanks for listening. Now on with the show. Hi, everybody. Welcome to My Favorite Mistake. I'm Mark Raven, and our guest today is Mike Ulmer. He's joining us from Hamilton, Ontario, up in the the great white north of, uh, of Canada, He specializes in helping business people write their books, and he's written 13 books with a total of nearly $1 million in total sales revenue. His latest book from March 2022 is Show and Tell Writing, a great short business book about how to write a great short business book. His other recent titles include Drop the Mic Marketing with Jason Hunt, The 50-Year-Old Millennial, The Leadership Gap Exposed by Millennials and How to Close It with Mark Petipas and the 40 Ways of the Fox with Ron Foxcroft. Uh, Mike worked as the in-house storyteller for the Toronto Maple Leafs, the Raptors, and TFC as the senior writer. That's the uh, the football club, Toronto Football Club. Is that right, Mike? Is yeah, that- well, football, soccer here, yes. Yes, right. Uh, he was senior uh, writer at Maple Leaf Sports and Entertainment, and he'd previously written for the Toronto Star, the National Post, and uh, other news organizations across Canada. Uh, so, Mike, welcome to the podcast. How are you this morning? Oh, thanks, Mark. Thank you for having me. I'm great. There's an interesting fact uh, about Mike. Um, he, he wrote a children's book, M is for Maple. It's the best-selling alphabet book in Canadian publishing history. So was it was a mistake to, to not write more alphabet books, or do you get tapped out at some point? No, my mistake wasn't saying no the first three times to it. You know, <laughs> the publisher was, it, it took a Michigan publisher to write an alphabet book that was specifically about Canada. And they said, Mike, we want you to write this book. And I said, nah, nah. And they said, no, really, you should. We, we really think it would be a hit. And, and I said, nah, nah. Well, why don't you come down to Chelsea, Michigan, and, uh, and, uh, and we'll talk about it. And they gave me lunch. And that was the thing. If you feed me, I'm way more amenable. So <laughs> I did the book, and I've talked to thousands and thousands of kids about the book, about writing, about Canada. It was the smartest thing I ever did, but I had to be nice. dragged kicking and screaming to it. Was there debate, uh, M is for Mountie versus that, M is for no. Maple? <laughs> the only thing that they asked for was Anna Green Gable. She said, I'm, fr- I'm from PEI, so I need Anna Green Gable. So, uh, the, and it has poetry. So A is for Anne. That's Anne with an E, a redheaded girl who loved Avonlea. The Cuthberts thought they were getting a boy, but that redheaded girl was their pride and their joy. <laughs> and so I wrote that poem first because it was for, uh, for uh, Anne, but uh, no, not M is for Mountie. M is for, oh my goodness. I think they, uh, Maurice Richard, if I if memory, memory serves. Ah, right. Uh, hockey, hockey player. Yes. A fantastic hockey player for the Montreal yeah. Canadiens. Yes, that's right. 
Well, uh, Mike and I, we, we had a really nice chat before we started recording, uh, yeah. reminiscing about sports. I grew up around Detroit. Mike is in the, uh, uh, you know, close enough to Toronto, and uh, we, we had a lot of reminiscing there. But Oh, uh, yeah. I'm from Sarnia, so we, we would go across the creek all the time. Cobo Hall, yeah. you name yeah. it. Yeah. Saw right Bruce Springsteen at Cobo Hall. Oh, wow. Right, uh, right across the river from, uh, or just up the river and across from Detroit. Our way. Um, um, Mike's website, if you want to learn more about his books and uh, the services he provides to authors, uh, it's getcatapulted.com. Uh, and I think we'll, we'll come back and, and, and talk more about that, questions about uh, writing and, and, and publishing. But as we always do here, Mike, you know, we kind of jump into the, the core question at hand, um, you know, thinking yeah. back to your career and the different things you've done, what is your favorite mistake? Well, boy, um... <laughs> it's it's sort of hard, Mark, to <laughs> to to find just one. But sure. my biggest mistake was getting arrested. Um, oh. I was in a confrontation on an airplane uh, where I slapped a coworker. Now, now people look at me and go, "You're the guy that I would reach for in the fight." If you know, everyone sort of doubles up in a, in a big hockey fight, and so you look for the guy that's going to do the least damage. They would be lining up. <laughs> to grab me because I'm so non-physical, but that was the mistake I made. And I changed the arc of my career completely. And, uh, I had always wanted to be a big time sports writer and I, I, I'd made that, but what I didn't know was that I was, I had bipolar illness. And so at that moment where I had reached kind of the height of it was the moment that I kind of brought it all down. And there is that great incident, great line from uh, Denzel Washington to Will Smith after he slapped uh, Chris Rock. And he said, at the moment of your greatest height, that's when the devil comes for you. And I, that line resonated so much with me because that was it, I was absolutely at the apex of a career that I've been building for 25 years. And that moment, I just blew it up. But the, 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 the colliery to that is that was the moment that I realized I needed help. And since that time, 20 years ago, yeah, 20 years ago, I've lived a much better life uh, because of medication and meditation and all these things. I needed that terrible event to sort of to sort of wow. send me the right way. So that was my biggest mistake. Wow. And, you know, a, 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 a biggest mistake versus a favorite mistake. I mean, you know, here on the podcast, a favorite oh, mistake yeah. is a favorite mistake is something we, we, we learn from or, yes. or opens doors and in, in, in sometimes an unexpected way. Um, I mean, sometimes a favorite mistake can be a biggest mistake. Not, it's not always true in, in both directions. There. That's a great but, distinction. But I, I mean, I, I appreciate your reflection on, you know, framing it as something that, that led to getting help and, and led to a better path. Um, you know, if you don't mind me asking, like what, what, what led, what led to the slap? I mean, what, what was well, the altercation about? My madness basically led to the slap. Um, cause, and, and, it, you know, it was just a work quarrel, uh, with, with somebody else that I elevated way past common sense. And, uh, it was because I had this feeling of grandiosity and entitlement that I thought I could just reach across someone, uh, in an airplane, no less, and, uh, and give them a cuff. And it was just an ordinary work thing. And, you know, people say to me, you know, I'll, I'll describe it and they'll say, you know, well, you were, you were entitled to do that. You know, he was a bad guy or whatever. 
Well, he wasn't a bad guy in particular, first. And second, there is no entitlement that comes that allows you to lay your hands on another human being. There isn't. There just isn't. There's nothing that guy could say or do that would warrant me slapping him, especially in a work context. So it was just a, it was just a, 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 a beef about work and, uh, and nothing personal past that. I mean, not that it justified what Will Smith did, but while we're talking about slaps, it's not like it's not like the guy told a joke about your wife or insulted yeah. you or 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 something. It was just no, yeah, it was just a clash of egos, you know. Except for mine was running out of control because I wasn't right, I wasn't well, and so that's and so the result of it was like I got arrested, I had to go to court. Uh, I spent 5,000 bucks on a lawyer. The arc of my, I never traveled again. I was going to Super Bowls and the Olympics. I never traveled again because, and quite justifiably, the company didn't, wouldn't be sure that something terrible wouldn't happen. And I, I did the same thing. I would have done the same thing they did. That meant that the best part of the job for me, traveling and go to all these places and writing these great events was gone. And so, um, and so my tenure at the paper for the rest of the time wasn't as satisfying. Uh, and even as I got better, um, you know, it just, it, it was just never the same. So, uh, the rest of my career worked out great. I ended up going mm-hmm. to Maple Leaf sports and entertainment. They were wonderful. And now I help people with the writing and I love that, mm-hmm. but it was in fact my favorite mistake, but it was, it was a cataclysmic mistake. Mm. I mean, it sounds like, I mean, this is, this is me, uh, guessing here or not. I mean, but you know, it, it's interesting that you frame it in terms of, you know, that, that episode, that incident led to you getting help. Um, you know, it may, I, I don't know if that, have you ever thought or reflected like, well, if that hadn't happened, something else might've happened that would yeah, be more, more I, derailing. I mean, that's a hypothetical. I realize. Yeah, I but. suppose. Well, it's funny, you know, a lot of times when people have bipolar illness, it manifests itself in, in, in ways like infidelity, gambling, rash, uh, uh, rash spending and stuff like that. None of that stuff was really big for me. Um, and, and, but I think you're dead on. If it, it hadn't come there, it would have come in another way that was perhaps even more damaging because, man, I was burning. I was burning. I had a, a, a certainty about what I was doing that, that um, looking back on it was just nuts. You know, some of my work was incomprehensible. You know, some of it was really good. <laughs> some so that's of it where was really, an editor really helps good. filter. Uh, here, here's a genius column versus, hey, let's go back to the drawing board. Yeah, some of them were, yeah, some, but I wasn't, some of them were really good and some of them were really bad. But the problem was I thought they were all really good. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I look at some of them and I go, what the hell was I writing? But others, because it gave you, uh, there were no filters. There was, uh, and there was a certain recklessness. Now, sometimes it, they came out kind of mean spirited, mm-hmm. but some looking back at some of that work, it schmecked, which really, uh, which made me wonder how many times people have written in an altered mm-hmm. consciousness mm-hmm. <laughs> and produced great work. Yeah. I mean, you, know, you, you, you use the word grandiosity or are there, are there two sides of a coin to say, um, and I, and I'll reflect on this as a writer or somebody who you know, sure. speaks and shares ideas. Is there sure. a certain level of that required say, I've got ideas that I have to share with people and they need to read them. Um, that, that 
I guess maybe at some point then goes a little bit too far to become a yeah, detriment. Yeah, no, that's it. The other night I was at Casablanca. They had a screening on a big on the big screen. Now Casablanca has only one regret, regrettable element, and that's the treatment of the only uh, African American character in the movie, Sam, which which is dreadful. But the rest of the movie is absolutely perfect. And as I left the movie. I wanted to converse with talk to other people about how great this movie was. So I stood at the door, I held the door open, and I said to people as they went by, wasn't that a great movie? And they said, yeah, it was great. And I, the next person came by, it was great. When I think something is great, I have a compulsion to share it. When I have a great story, I have to share it. It's not like it's a, and my family has always known that. When I was a little kid, uh, I was five years old. My sister got an umbrella for her birthday, and we were, we happened to be in the car driving by as she was walking down the, the street, and I rolled down the window and said, it's an umbrella. <laughs> <laughs> it's an umbrella. It's still code in my family for the fact that I can't stop myself. Right. <laughs> so that right. was always there, but it was the, it was the absolute um, thinking that whatever mm -hmm. I did was I just couldn't understand why no one else got it. I just thought that I was the only person, mm. seemingly mm -hmm. the only person that had this absolute clarity of what I was doing. And of course, um, and I think anyone can do this when you have no restraint, you're just going to keep on drifting out, mm -hmm. drifting out, drifting mm -hmm. out until your actions are unfathomable to other people. Mm -hmm. And that's where I was. Yeah. I mean, I think it's interesting. Um, you know, the, you, you, you didn't get fired that you, you know, you got this travel ban. Yeah. Was, 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 was some of that a matter of the organization maybe showing you some grace of realizing or you discovering and them discovering that you were battling uh, bipolar disorder and let's, let's give Mike a second chance, but kind of keep them on a, if you will, a tighter leash. No, it wasn't like that at all. They, they, it, it, the guy that, that I was involved with left the paper I was new at the paper and there had been some tumultuous times just before that the guy who hired me got fired. And so maybe they realized that, that I needed, I needed help and it, they hadn't made it available to me. But even then 20 years ago, um, there wasn't a recognition at all on their part, nor could I have expected one because no one really knew what was going on. And that kind of goes to, to the nature of depression because the average time it takes for someone to be diagnosed with bipolar disorder is about 10 years. You don't go to the doctor when you feel great. You go to the doctor when you feel poorly. And so as a result, the doctor gives you antidepressants. And I make the analogy of a balloon, right? Instead of sort of letting a little air out of the balloon, they fill the balloon up with air. That's what the medication does. And so all of a sudden the balloon just flies around and then hits the ground empty. It's it's natural to think that you need to pump up the balloon when the person presents themselves in a depressed state. But in fact, that's the worst thing that can happen. You have to have a very um, a course of treatment that really addresses that bipolar illness. If not, then you just, it's things spiral. And that's yeah. what happened with me. Yeah. And you, you wrote in, in your book, um, yeah, it wasn't even so much a mistake, but maybe it was just at, at the frontier of medical knowledge of what we didn't know then versus what we know now, like maybe oh. now it would be a mistake or how do you prevent the mistake? You know, it might be a question for the clinicians out there. How do you prevent that mistake um, based on today's knowledge? Uh, I wonder, you know, have they gotten better 
at diagnosing bipolar, or once that diagnosis is known, maybe they're 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 more um, consistent in what to prescribe or what not to prescribe. Well, the only thing was is that what I was giving them to diagnose me was only the sad part, mm-hmm. sure. right? So very difficult to mm-hmm. for someone to intuit that other part because you only present when you're sad, and so very very difficult. Although, <laughs> so when I finally got when I was finally diagnosed correctly. I came back to my wife and I was quite flummoxed because no one who's bipolar thinks they're bipolar until someone says, dude, you're bipolar. And then because they're, they're seeing both the, the ups and the downs, the, the that's manic right. or the depression. Yeah. So I came back to my wife and I said, uh, they said I'm bipolar. And she went, no, yes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, one other question, you know, before moving on to some other topics, um, sure. you know, when, 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 when this happened, you know, one, one thing I think, you know, it's interesting to think through, um, you know, is, is showing some grace to yourself when a mistake happens, like, you know, in this situation here, you know, you can't undo a slap. Um, curious, you know, kind of your thoughts in terms of like, uh, I don't know if you will forgiving yourself or kind of processing that and, and moving on. Well, it's really, that's really such a great question because when we think about our favorite mistake, we naturally think of, it's my favorite mistake, right? So we naturally think about our ramifications, but what's hard to do is to think about the ramifications about the other person on the other end of that, because, you know, you've done that person damage and you can, you can do your best when you recover to try to fix that. Really, that person is under no obligation to accept your the fact that you're sorry. And so the challenge, and I think that's such an astute question, the challenge is then to um, to reach a peace with that because you can't make amends. You know, the great thing about uh, about uh, one of the things about Catholicism is that you say three Hail Marys and, and you're square, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> you, say, you confess to the priest, you see your three Hail Marys and we're good. Absolution is a great thing to grant, but in its absence, when you don't receive absolution, that sets up another dynamic of how do you how to give yourself absolution. I'm not sure we can absolve ourselves completely. And I, I think that's a good thing because that little bit of regret should exist because that that, of course, is your alarm bell for when you're when you're acting out again. But my regret isn't necessarily what I did, although I regret it, my regret is that I can't make it right. And that's, I altered the course of somebody else's life. That's a little tougher to live with. Yeah. Yeah. Did you, did you, you said that person that you slapped left the paper. Did you ever cross paths again? Just yeah. On the periphery, but completely within his, his, his rights, he had no interest in engaging me. Sure. And I get it. I was, I haven't really, talked about this on a podcast much just because i wouldn't want to bring that person back into my story sure i think podcasts are are there's so many <laughs> good ones that uh, hopefully this I, I actually don't want this to reach him because i don't want to drag him in but i think it's instructive i think the greater good is that it's instructive for people to know that that you can kind of come back and from this from these incidents yeah well thank you for for sharing the story and 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 the reflection and 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 you know, some, some glimpse into a path for, um, you know, being healthier and being in a better place. So it's certainly good to hear that part of the story oh, as well. Yeah. Thank you. It's, it's, uh, 
it's it's I still have a, a wide range of uh, of emotions, you know, but I'm just just the, the guy next door now. But oh man, I burn bright. And the, just to put a, put a close on it, a lot of people don't want to be medicated because you know, imagine a life where you're sure about everything. Where everything you do in your own mind is justified. I mean, who wouldn't want that? Where your where your mind is racing to conclusions. Many of them really great conclusions. You know, where you're um, every step you take, you, you you're walking like a giant. That's a very seductive thing, and so a lot of people, I think, don't want to go back and and take the shrinking pill and go 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 back to being like everybody else. So um, it's it's a very enticing prospect, and a lot of people don't want to go back until they really mess it up, and then they have to have a, a real accounting, and uh, and so it's a very powerful allure. Hmm. Well, th- again, thank you for gosh, that's well said, and thank you for you know the the reflections and, and the story. Like yeah. uh, one other question I want to ask you before you know talking about books and publishing. This this was something you talked about. Um, in your book and maybe thinking as a writer or thinking about words and language um, and, and as, as you being um, a cancer survivor, why, why, why do you say it's a mistake to use the phrase, um, you know, battle with cancer? I thought that was an interesting point. Thank you for asking that. That's so great. Cancer, like many things is mythologized as a battle and I've had cancer. I don't recommend it. Uh, but, <laughs> but, um, if it's a battle, then when you die, you lose, right? I mean, we say he lost his battle to cancer. We use right. the verb lose, right? You right. didn't lose your, Norm right. McDonald said it best. I had the cancer, the cancer killed me. That's a draw. <laughs> the cancer died too. Yeah. yeah. Rest, rest <laughs> in peace, Norm. Yeah. Yeah. What yeah. a brilliant observation. Yeah. Because what we're saying is that people that didn't, didn't didn't survive died and and we all die it, that was just their time people say you beat cancer i didn't beat cancer it i i took the measures to that 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 didn't allow it to live and anyone would take those measures there wasn't any great courage in beating cancer any more than there was any great weakness in in, in dying and, and quote quote losing to it we have to make that analogy and i just don't understand why i see it all the time I think it's a discredit to the people who pass. It was their time. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, it's it's. I mean, it's it's interesting to think about. It's I think well intended. Like you know, they they good for them. They, they the good they fight. Were brave. They fought the good fight. But then, like you said, yeah, losing a battle it almost implies of what they well they didn't they didn't fight hard enough. I mean, really? that that's insulting them, right? That's yeah. so. I think you, I couldn't agree. I wish I'd worded it that well. You're absolutely right. Yeah. Um, that's an in, in, interesting point to, to think, uh, and, 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 and reflect about there. So, um, I want to ask about, you know, your, your experience with writing and, and publishing and helping people write, um, you know, you, before we talk maybe about, you know, possible book writing mistakes, you know, you, you, sure. you, you state pretty strongly, um, I, I jotted this down here of, of, you know, answering this question, why should people write a business book? And, and, and you say, uh, pretty directly, everyone should. So I'd be curious to hear your your thought your thoughts on that. Well, thanks. It's um, 
I just think it's 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 a fantastic vehicle. Maybe not for the reason that you think it is. Obviously, uh, in a, sort of when we're all our own marketing companies, to have a book, there's listen. To write a book generates more, um, not necessarily um, warranted esteem than anything else I can imagine, except for being a scratch golfer. I mean, I've been dining out on this for years and years and years about how when you write a book, people think you're really, really smart. People will tell me that that that, that just a book is like a checkup. When someone sees uh, that you've written a book, they haven't even read the book. They go, oh, you've written a book. Well, you must be an authority then. So just having done that, there's so many great things about writing a book. It's, it's sort of the central wheel for your, for your media. Um, you can make money doing it, which is great. If you want a speaking career, it's, it's almost essential to, to have a book. It's a, it's a, if you don't have a book, I think they would look at you really askance. So that's really, really important. Um, and the really great thing, if you write a, write a great book, is that um, you can find that story you have to tell every day for the rest of your life. I call it the proposition. And it's like it's like the four-hour work week. It's a great idea that sort of when you walk by the bookstore, it sort of twists your head around. You got to see. It's based really on your own experiences. So everyone's proposition is different. But it's a piece of information of wisdom that has great value and utility for the person that, that you're helping. So when it, when it, whenever the business is, you, if you find that great, great piece of information, it can really help them. And if I can give you an example. So... Let's say that you're, um, you help people plan their estates and, and you've seen people come in time after time after time and all they care about is denying the government their inheritance tax. They'll have anyone else implement the will. They'll give people their property. They, all they care about is the fact that the government doesn't get their money. And the result of that is great, great destruction in families because people are they don't understand why other people were chosen to administer the will. They don't understand why someone got a better inheritance. The money always comes if, if there's a cottage or a property that people have emotional value to. It's just a schmozzle and it does so much damage. But the truth is less than 1% of inheritance create an, uh, an inheritance tax. So the things that people are destroying their family about, they're, they're not applicable, hmm. right? They're destroying their families for nothing. So if you were as someone in, the, in this business, that piece of knowledge, which sort of goes against the grain, most people are worried about that very thing. That's a super piece of, of, of knowledge. So if you wrote a book that said, don't ruin your life for an inheritance tax that you're not going to pay, right? And you can call it whatever you wanted, but that's a terrific message. So it takes a long time to sort of dig and find that message. Sometimes it just takes 10 minutes. Sometimes it takes a long time. So I had a, I did a, a book with a friend, Mark Petipa, called The 50-Year-Old Millennial, which you referenced. It was three hours into our conversation where Mark said, you know, I, we're talking about millennials. It's really fashionable to dump on millennials. And he said, they're right. Everything they say is right. They deserve what they want. They deserve um, to be have a transparent management track. They deserve regular feedback. They deserve yeah. to have access to the people I, making the decisions. I, I, I totally agree. The things that are often ascribed to millennials, I think, well, I, I know older, other generations that want those same things, but maybe they've gotten beaten down and they, they, they don't ask for it anymore. That's exactly right, Mark. People don't ask for it anymore. And, and, he, and that's what he said. And he said, yeah. And I said, well, you're like a 50-year-old millennial. There it is. There it is.
<laughs> that was three hours into our conversation. So in, in Mark's case, we knew he wanted to attack it from a point of servant leadership. He, that's what he believes in. But we realized that, that, in fact, his model for servant leadership was perfectly suited to attracting and retaining millennial talent who are now in the prime years of their, their creativity and productivity. So we didn't know the book until that moment. And then the rest of it was detail. So, yeah, there's that exploration that's so important to find that one thing, that one hook. And then after that, it's just it's just fun. Yeah. Well, you're, you're, you're speaking to, the, I think, the power of partnering up with, with somebody or with people. We often think of writing as this very solitary, it's in my head or I've done research and it's my fingers on the keyboard. And I think it goes to show there, there are many ways to bring a book into existence. If someone says, but, but Mike, I'm not a writer. Yeah. That's, not, that's not an unsurpassable barrier, right? No, there's a couple of things. When people say I'm not a writer, well, I, I wasn't a swimmer until I learned. <laughs> right? yeah. Imagine you're a baby and the baby says, uh, gets up and tries to walking and falls down. The baby goes, well, I guess that's it for the walking thing. Right, right, right. <laughs> we can learn. We can adapt skills. Now, I do think that having someone help you find that story, walk you through, look at your, your history, and look at the point that brought you to that conclusion, because the second part of it, once you have that hook, the second part of it, Mark, is to be able to sort of look at my history and be able to show the person what brought you to that point. And so the backstory and the backstory is, is, is great because if I told you, Mark, I, I just thought of this 10 seconds ago. If I told you, Mark, it took me 10 years to figure this out, but now I know you would be more inclined to believe me, the, the conclusion that came after 10 years in 10 seconds. So showing the reader the journey to that conclusion establishes this credibility to you for you that's really essential to the book as well and then the third element of the book is just tips just all sorts of tips in this case we talked about earlier would be tax tips so it's those three elements you can write your book and that's great but i think it we you know i if i have an appendectomy i'd rather have someone help me with it (laughs) (laughs) right and so I'm not going to read. Someone, I mean, I'm not going to read a book about how to do your own appendectomy. <laughs> to have someone look at your life, and because a lot of times the things aren't really pleasant. I did the book, the 40, uh, 40 Ways of the Fox. I turned to Ron. I said, "Why don't you drink?" And he said, "Because my dad drank and he beat me." And I said, "Well, why did he beat you?" And he, and he said, "Well, because he was a man who who said a lot of things. He said would have, could have, should have." And I, I vowed that I would never drink and that I would never utter those mm-hmm. words again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Ron, this is Ron Foxcroft, who I'm speaking to, who's that book there, mm-hmm. 40 Ways of Wait, the Wait, hold, hold, hold that back up again. Was that? Uh... Sure. Okay. I was going to say, uh, actually a hockey referee or? No, he was uh, a basketball just... referee who invented oh, the basketball. Fox 40 whistle. Okay. Yep. Okay. And so that piercing whistle that uh-huh. it's called, that, that, uh, and that he would be your favorite mistake because he discovered that he blew the whistle in, a, in an Olympic uh, pre-tournament game in Brazil and it didn't work. And, <laughs> and, and he said, if I ever survive this, I'm going to build a better whistle. Wow. <laughs> and he did. Wow. That, that was his favorite mistake. And oh, you're writing good. Poem, I, I, may, right, I, may, I may, I may ask for an instruction there. So, I would uh, gladly do that. So. That but, sounds like a, a good story, but sorry, go ahead. So yeah. Ron doesn't talk about his alcoholic father to, to people. Mm-hmm. And, but if you know, Ron, he's always been running both towards and away from his dad. And, 
And I didn't discover that until that, that moment. And so having someone interview you, sometimes uh, you create a truth that you wouldn't otherwise volunteer. And so that's really the power of it. Because most people that read that book say, geez, Ron, my dad drank too. I, I, I get you. I understand you in a way you, I couldn't before. So that gives you a credibility and a power. What we do is, is we have sort of one service is that we, I just, we, I help you find that hook. And just, we talk until it takes an hour, maybe three hours. We find that hook and that's it. I call it find your brand for a grant. <laughs> yeah. And we do that. And then we have other services where we can give, help you lay out the book. You can do it yourself. And then we have another service where you give us three or four hours. and That's the book. Yeah. Wow. The, um, the thing about credibility boosting, you're, you're right. I end up, you know, friends of mine who are consultants and, and, and they do speaking and they want to do more. The conversation almost always comes back to, so are you writing a book? Yes. I think there's an interesting mistake that happens sometimes, though, is assuming that the author will also be a good speaker. Like those, those are almost mutually exclusive skill sets uh, or it, it, I wouldn't assume the ability to, to write or create a book always means that they're a good speaker. Like they, they, they may have good things to say that maybe just aren't they like they may, they maybe need a speaking coach if they just don't deliver that message well uh, verbally, but, um, that's the, the, those are things like you said about swimming or learning to walk. I mean, so I, somebody, uh, I've had a speaking coach. I think I'm reasonably okay at it, but, uh, it's a skill. Maybe it's a mistake of, of somebody not investing enough in becoming a better speaker. I don't know. Well, of course, as you know, there's two elements to speaking. There's a presentation and then there's the, the and then there's the actual message. I can't do much for the, for the presentation, but the real benefit of, I always, I always say this, the real benefit of a book is, is I'm giving you the book for free. I'm bringing you to the conclusion. That's why you pay me. Athletes, a, a hockey player will say, hey, man, I play for free. You mm. pay me to practice. Uh, <laughs> that's good. <laughs> or I'm giving you the book for free. The real value is in the conclusion. And so... You know, if you wrote the book you meant to write, you wrote the wrong book. The process of writing, <laughs> I can see you. Yeah, right. Yeah, it. yeah, 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 yeah. The process of working with someone and writing the book is that it's, it's, you have to go past what you know into what you think and what you remember and what you feel and what you think you know and what mm -hmm. you don't know, what you don't know. And so mm -hmm. the, the conclusion, because you're tested. You know, I'm asking you questions. So you're tested. And so the result is you find that story that's really great. You find that hook that's really great. And then you adapt that to your speech. So in terms of someone looking to, to create a message, craft a message for their speech, I think the process that we do is really useful. But in terms of speaking in front of people, that's where your speaking coach really comes through. Sure. Sure. Um, one other question I want to ask, we, when we talked previously, you brought up a really interesting idea um, that it might be a mistake or it is a mistake to write with your audience in mind. That's like, that seems like a thoughtful thing to do as the writer. Like, well, I want yes. to think about my audience and what are they going to take away from it and what can they do? And I'm writing with the audience in mind. Uh, tell us more about your view on that. Well, I, there's sort of two, two streams to that. 
every word that you write as an author has to be done in consideration of the reader. Every decision you make has to be done for their convenience. They're putting down every single thing they have going in the world, all their cares, all their concerns to give you their undivided attention. And that's a privilege that you have to take really, really seriously. And that factors into what your book looks like, whether they're sidebars, how easy you make it, how much I, I was given a book. It had 42,000 words. It now has 20. It's better. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so every element, you know, powerful verbs, every element has to be done in consideration of the reader. But it, your message, if it's, if it's skewed to please the reader, it's, it's your journey, right? It doesn't have anything to do with them. At the end of the journey, hopefully you have something you can bring to them. But to write a book with the, with the, with the, the, the audience in mind is to patronize them. Mm, okay. Yeah. You have to come with your conclusion. And your conclusion is so strong that it benefits them. You don't want to write a book that doesn't benefit the people that you want to, to, to read it. But if you write a book always with the intention of pleasing who will read it, then you're not doing either one of you any good. So yeah, so that, thank you. That's that's a much more subtle, better articulation than what I had jotted down from our previous conversation. So um, yeah, I didn't mean to misrepresent. It would be a mistake to say Mike is saying don't think about your reader because that's clearly not what you're saying and not what you mean. But but don't go overboard in um, focusing only on the reader. There's got to be some self, some sense of self, and 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 saying well here. I'm curious your thoughts on this of like, here's what I feel compelled to write, whether anybody else likes it or not. There's That's some exactly. element of that required. Yeah, because you have to take a contrarian stance. You know, the four hour work week is a contrarian stance. Um, 4,000 uh, weeks, the time management for mortals is a contrarian stance. You know, you have to be willing to say to the people who want to buy your book, we're doing this wrong. And this is the best way. But if you're always worried about pleasing your reader, then you're going to end up saying, you know, dude, you're doing everything right. And then how can you help them? Great point. Great point. Um, Mike, I want to ask a, a question or two about publishing. And again, our, our guest is Mike Ulmer. His website is getcatapulted.com uh, to go learn more about him. Um, you know, in as let's say somebody is thinking of writing a book and they're trying to figure out how to do it. Nowadays, there are many avenues open. It, it, it's not the old days of um, finding, you know, having to find a publisher yeah, um, and going through that proposal or having a agent and shopping it around. There are many uh, approaches to self-publishing. And I don't even like the term self-publishing. It's more of like, you know, self-directed publishing with yes. great yeah. professionals any more than I would self-operate <laughs> back, back to your, uh, your point about that. Um, self-publishing can be just as professional as uh, a traditional publisher, but, but, but that said, um, there are mistakes sometimes that people make of falling into a partnership with somebody who's, who's more predatory than, uh, than, well, uh, just not more predatory is predatory. How, how does somebody look out for that and, and make sure they're, they're partnering with somebody who, you know, let's say doesn't become an unnecessary middleman in some of the, uh, the selling of the book. Well, I think there's two things to worry about. There are people who will say they're helping you write your book, but they'll charge you by the, by the month. And writing a book is hard. 
I put mine off all the time. <laughs> you're going to have some periods where you're just not up to it. And so the, the meter is still running. So what they want is for you to be, you know, stalled because then they can charge you more and more and more. So there's writing services that are sort of uh, where their profit motive is not to have you finish the book. Um, there's writing services where they won't tell you the hard truths and, and that, that you're not bringing anything to the table, that you're not being vulnerable enough. It's hard to say to someone who's paying you, you're not giving me enough. You know, that's hard. Um, and, and so and there are people that are just not terribly qualified to do it either. So there's sort of that, that corner. But the other corner is that people that only want to talk about the marketing, just the marketing, and specifically people that want to game the algorithm and mm -hmm. make you... Uh, you know, a bestseller. When I see the word bestseller, I automatically think bullshit. You right. Know? Because, <laughs> right. Because it's really easy to be, it's an, it's an, it's the, A, there is no standard for bestseller. Right. If you're in the category of left handed knitting books with red thread and you've sold three and the only other person who sold one, you're the bestseller <laughs> in that category. Congratulations. Right. Or maybe the bestseller of that category of books at um, Amazon. Estonia or something, right? Excellent. Good call. Well, at then then, then I'm, a, I'm, an, I'm an international bestseller. That's it. You're, you're big. <laughs> so you get a screen capture and all of a sudden you're the bestseller. There is no number for bestsellers. A. Anyone who tells you they can make you a bestseller without knowing your book is lying to you. Well, they're not lying to you. They can actually do it, but it's, it's, they're selling you something that's completely invalid. I had someone tell me, I could, you know, write a book in a day and I can make that a bestseller. Really? A day, you know, it, it doesn't work that way. Right. And, you know, I, I, in, in your bio, there's a difference between saying best-selling as a broad category. Like I've yeah. had friends in the um, distilling uh, business industry. There, there are words like craft. Craft whiskey has no legal definition. No. It's just yeah. a word. Natural. And bestseller, unless someone can really be specific. So in your bio, you give the sales number. And it's it's the best-selling alphabet book now in in Canadian publishing history. So I'm 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 I'm, I'm believing you. I'm taking that at face value. But that's nice. a specific enough claim. I mean, it's it's the old joke of like, well, if the lie is really specific, it becomes more believable. But no, I mean, <laughs> but you've got some data and credibility to this um, this statement. Or it gets to the point of like, well, if every book is a bestseller, then then none of them are. Yeah, right? that's it. I see it all the time. Best-selling author. Oh man, I. I would advise anyone who's who who a has paid for this to take it down, man. And and here's the thing: here's the problem with it. If you concentrate on the marketing of the book exclusively, then then the book won't the book won't be a good book. Write a good book. That's it. Just write a good book. The rest of it will take care of itself. You'll get great reviews. You'll get word of mouth. One person saying to another, I love this book is far more important than, than any crazy bought bestseller element. Write a great book and everything else will take care of itself. But write with vulnerability and offer the reader something tangible and have a great backstory and lots of advice. That's great advice to end this on. Uh, Mike, thank you for your uh, willingness to be vulnerable in, in telling um, your story of your favorite mistake. Um, and the reflections and, and move, moving forward from that. So I, I really do appreciate that. 
And, you know, if you want to uh, write a great book, you know, Mike is uh, somebody who can help you with that. You can learn more about his services at getcatapulted.com. Uh, again, his most recent book, which I've, I've started reading and I've, I've purchased and I'm going to continue reading. God bless as you, I'm, my son. As I'm, bless go- you. as I'm going through a journey, uh, writing a book about lessons learned from this podcast here. Uh, his book is Show and Tell Writing, a great short business book about how to write a great short business book. And maybe someday you can write a book about how to write a book to help people write a book. <laughs> That's right. You know, it's very meta, very, <laughs> very meta. Because there are a lot of books out there about how to write a book. Uh, there are podcasts about how to do a podcast. Um, <laughs> there's there's something uh, certainly helpful and useful there from what I've seen. So, Are there any um, marketers that don't market to other people learning how to market? Like the the business of marketers showing non-marketers how to market seems to be marketing. Sure. And I'm, I'm, I'm sure that does exist, <laughs> but um, there's uh bring, bring, maybe, you know, bring it back to, we, we'd done all the sports talk. Um, there was somebody who lived down the street from me. Um, oh my gosh. He was, a, uh, he, he, he wasn't the player, but he ran a uh, hitting Academy and baseball Academy yeah. That was affiliated and it was named at Bernie Carbo. Oh, Bernie hit the big home run for the Red Sox. Yes. Yeah. Bernie Carbo. Um, it was and and so I think you know the, the guy who lived down the street, he was the father of a, a classmate. I think he had played minor league baseball. But you know, I think there's something to be said for it. Like I think he was smart to call it the Bernie Carbo school because you sure. want to learn from somebody yeah. who'd been there, done that at the highest levels. That may or may not be true um, with a book coach. So that's that's maybe something to look out for or think about as well. Yeah, it's it's true. Are there a lot of book coaches out there, Mark? Because because I haven't. Many. It, there are. Yeah, yeah, I, I think there are. There are a lot of coaches these days for um, like as you said, people offering services to help. I've I've used book coaches and I've used people there. There's an important role to play. Yeah, but I, yeah. I, I think as with anything. Um, their past accomplishments and your relationship with them, your fit and connection with them matter a lot because I'm sure Bernie Carbo wasn't the right hitting coach for every baseball player. No, of course. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I've, I, I, I've done some research on that and I've, I, I found some, but uh, I'm, I'm glad you told me that. I didn't know there was that kind of a volume of them out there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Food for thought. So uh, maybe there's a book to be written about how to choose the book coach. That's right for you. <laughs> how to choose a book coach who, shows you how to write the book about how to write the book. We'll, 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 we'll keep working on that. <laughs> Mike, this has been a lot of fun. Thank you earlier Thank you for, for uh, the baseball talk. And, and, and that, that, that would have been fun to record for a different audience. And maybe we can do that again someday. People from Sarnia and from what, what's your hometown in Michigan? Livonia, Michigan. Livonia, of course. Livonia, Michigan. Yes. Yeah, not too far across from the crossing into Windsor. Ontario. But uh, again, Mike Ulmer uh, has been our guest today. It's been great fun. Um, I think really meaningful episode. So thank you for that. Thank you for having me. I sure appreciate it, Mark. Thanks again to Mike Ulmer for being such an interesting guest today and for sharing his story. To learn more about him, his books and his work and more, look for links in the show notes or go to markgraven.com slash mistake 176. As always, I want to thank you for listening. I hope this podcast inspires you to reflect on your own mistakes how you can learn from them or turn them into a positive. I've had listeners tell me they started being more open and honest about mistakes in their work. And they're trying to create a workplace culture where it's safe to speak up about problems because that leads to more improvement and better business results. 
If you have feedback or a story to share, you can email me, myfavoritemistakepodcast at gmail.com. And again, our website is myfavoritemistakepodcast.com.